This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat. Welcome to Tao Unbound. We're happy to have you for yet another episode, this time with Professor Itai Ater from the Kohler School of Management. He is an economist with the Kohler School of Management, uh, shall I mention proudly that the Kohler School of Management is one of the best schools in the world. Um, and we were just ranked, I think, number seven in terms of the number of entrepreneurs coming that came out of the, of the school. He's also a senior fellow at the Israel Democracy Institute, IDI, which is a leading think tank in Israel that deals with aspects of Israeli democracy, enhancing them. And I, and I would say that uh, this is a very timely uh, engagement. And, and lastly, uh, part of your biography, uh, Professor Ater is also one of the initiators of the Economist's Letters to the government regarding the judicial overhaul in Israel. And I like the, the word overhaul. Uh, many people have, uh, you know, different terms to describe what's happening. It's good to have you with us. Thank you. Happy to be here. And, I, and, I, and you have such an impressive background. You spent time at the Hebrew U, you spent time in, at, Harvard, at Stanford University on the West Coast. Uh, you specialize in the study and analysis of cost of living factors and regulations that enhance economic crimes. These are all fascinating issues. But I think that the last seven months, since the eruption of the current wave of political instability in Israel, you're mostly preoccupied with dealing with the issue of what's happening in Israel. But before we ask you, how did we get here? Tell us about your background. Um, nice to be here. I'm a professor at the econ professor at Kohler School of Management. I did my undergrad at Hebrew U. I studied law and econ. Also uh, worked one year at the Israeli Antitrust Authority before moving to Stanford, where I did my PhD. Uh, right after completing my PhD, I came back to Tel Aviv to join the School of Management since uh, 2008, about 15 years. Uh, during the time, uh, the last 15 years, I also spent one year in Berkeley on sabbatical. I live in Tel Aviv, three kids. Um, and what was your PhD about? So it was econ PhD, and I was dealing again with the issue of regulation and, and cost of living in general, or it's called in, 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 uh, in terms of research, it's called industrial organization, or how different markets operate. Uh, I was focusing there some of it on, on Israel and some of it on, on the airline industry in the U.S. So the deregulation of the airline industry, which I believe took place in the late 1980s, uh, 89, if I'm not mistaken. 78. Oh, this is, the deregulation yeah. took place in 78. So what happened in the late, late 1980s in the airline industry? Something major happened, if I remember Perhaps. correctly. I remember that because I, I, I had some issues with United Airlines and I read, I did some reading about it because I wanted to write the letter to the CEO, which I did. His name was Oscar Munoz at the time. So what can we learn from what happened to the airline industry? Because I remember as a young man, it was fun to fly. And you could trust the airlines. You could, you could trust them that they will not lie to you, that they will be there on time. What happened? I think uh, there's, there's always some sort of a trade-off between, not always, but often a trade-off between price and, and quality. And what happened there 
if we're trying to look generally, is like you have more competition, prices go down, which is good generally, but there are some potential consequences. And one of the consequences, and we see this in, in different aspects, in different uh, fields, is that quality of the product of the service may go down. And I think in the context of the airline industry, if you flew before 78, before the regulation, it was great. Flights were on time. It was the best food ever. It was very spacious and everything, but prices were, were very high. So there's some trade-off. You should, what the right delicate trade-off, it's, it's a question. It's not always clear, uh, but price is important, but not, not, not the only thing that we should take into account. And of course, there's a big push, in, uh, especially in the United States, and, and we're seeing it here now with the exportation of some ideas, uh, specifically by things, think tanks like uh, Kohelet, um, that uh, advocate uh, deregulation, privatization, the non-centrality of government. And um, and did did you see any signs of this coming when you were in the states? Actually, I've not. No, I haven't thought about it at that time. Probably there were signs, but I wasn't aware of these. But definitely, the idea of free market in the U.S. is is clearly the the the, the mother or the, the the it's very much centralized part of the thinking in the U.S. And they are trying to export this in to other places. So that's true. What are the main structural reasons why you can't simply transplant one element from a different system and introduce it to another system. For example, the notion of uh, uh, the politicization of the court system, which is something that is part of the American system, but they have a whole other set of checks and balances. What are those structural differences that you see between the two systems that make it almost impossible to import such elements? Every, every country is, is unique. Every every industry is unique, is different. So there are some similarities, of course, but should, we should, really should take into account there are some big differences. And just exporting might have much more damage than benefit than what you sh we should think of. I think you were thinking about what we see in the judicial system here, of course, that's a great example. We don't have a constitution. We don't have two parliaments. So just taking one element and thinking that if we take this to other, some other country, that should be enough. It's a dangerous move. By the way, I don't know if you know the, the people that, um, that support those ideas, but what do you think they have in mind? Are they totally cynical or are they... Do they really believe in what they're saying? I don't know. I mean, you're, you're so deeply involved in the opposition to this uh, uh, judicial changes, the proposed changes. So what, what I think some of them uh, really think that that should benefit. Some of them are cynical. Some of them think about their personal aspects. So there's no one person that uh, there are different views or different uh, motivation for what we see here. Um, right now, I'm working on stopping this or trying to prevent this. Um, not so much thinking about what their actual motivation for these. Now, if you had to compare what's happening today in Israel, what would you say internationally is the most relevant um, case? Is it Hungary? Is it Poland? Is it Turkey? Is it South Africa, Ukraine, Lebanon? So there are different aspects. I think we, we typically we compare what we see here to Hungary and Poland in terms of the weakening of the democracy, the, the, the diminishing of the power of the judicial system. So that's a, the obvious comparison. But again, one, each comparison is, is not clearly the best comparison. So think about Hungary. 
Uh, it has a EU, it's part of the uh, European Union, so it has some uh, additional uh, um, system that protects Hungary, which we don't have. Another uh, difference is, if we think about Israel, it's a much smaller country. It's already, it's already diverse, much more than Hungary or Poland. So there are certain limitations or, or complexities to Israel, which we don't see in Hungary. So there are some similarities in terms of the uh, strong leaders that try to weaken the judiciary. That's what we saw in Hungary. That In that sense, it's quite similar to what we see in, in Israel. But again, there are some differences. So we should take into account each comparison with some cautious uh, looking at it and trying to understand what can we learn and what can we not learn from each comparison. Um, but definitely what, uh, the, the basic uh, comparison is Hungary and, and Poland in terms of, of, the, of the, the, the attempt to weaken the, the, the judiciary. I think that's a, a relatively clean comparison. Yeah, so you know that some people actually argue, and I think that there's, um, there's a certain validity to this argument, that the byproduct of what we're seeing is um, that the people that have options will simply um, take advantages of options, meaning people that can relocate will relocate, and Israel will experience two things, they say. Uh, one is massive brain drain, especially of the young-serving elite. And the second thing is, which is enhanced by the algorithms of social media is that we are pitting one group against each other, the, the whole populist conversation about first Israel versus second Israel and so on and so forth. And that could end uh, with tremendous uh, racial and, and ethnic tension, which could bring about a complete implosion like what happened in Lebanon. Yes, I think Tom Friedman did this comparison recently, making so that he, he said, I think he's a wise man, of course, comparing Israel to Lebanon in terms of it's a small country, already diverse, and we don't if we don't adopt this live and let live uh, policy, which is roughly what we did over the last 75 years, we're likely to end like Lebanon. And this is a very dire comparison. So it's not like Hungary or Poland, which are still not w doing well, but not doing really bad in, in, in various aspects. But if we look at what's happening in, in Lebanon, that's a very, very bad outcome. Very bad. No, no, nothing could... It's, it's unimaginable what we see in, what we have now in Lebanon. If Israel is f following the footsteps of Lebanon, this is very dire situation. Just f going back to your first point about brain drain, I think this is a very concerning point. And let me say a few things. We had a conference in February, like early February, we had a conference from people from professors, from uh, Hungarian professor, Turkish professors, and Russian professors, and a Polish professor. So we did these countries in order to learn from what they have done in their countries. This is early February. So the, the Hungarian professor used to live in Hungary in Budapest. He's no longer living there. The same is from the Russian professor who used to live in Moscow. He's not living there anymore. The Turkish professor is living in the U.S. The Polish professor, the only one who still lives in Warsaw, but she didn't want us to have a picture online. We did like a black screen. When we had the recording of the video, she asked us to remove it. She didn't want anyone in Poland to know that she participated in, a, in an academic conference in which she or else somebody else criticized or said something bad about the government. So the brain drain situation, already in February, it was clear from the political or from the comparison from other countries, it's a big issue. We already see this in Tel Aviv University where some professors 
that I know personally have decided to leave Israel. Okay, they had ten years. They were like professor in Tel Aviv, and they decided to leave Israel, given what we see in Israel these days. This is very bad, and 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 we're talking about the elite in the sense of academia, tech, doctors. If they're going to leave, and this is something that people are, of course, already discussing, that would have tremendous negative consequences to the economy. And we are very much concerned about it. That's a big thing that we should take into account. And this is something that uh, potentially is going to happen more and more common in the coming year. Uh, think it's, it's not easy to move, to relocate, of course. You move your family, you move your kids, but things are already uh, happening in this direction. Yeah, and I think that's that's something that um, uh, many people sense. I just read recently that the number of Israelis that live in Portugal went up from 1,000 to 15,000. And there, there are tens of thousands of Israelis that moved recently to Cyprus. Uh, but, uh, but we're talking about the serving elites. Now, what do you say to the people that argue that it's true that the government has 64 seats in the Knesset, the coalition, and they can pass laws and they can introduce those things that they'd like to introduce. But at the end of the day, if they don't have what we call the serving elites working with them, meaning the heads of the banking system, the financial world, the insurance companies, the industry, the technology, the doctors, and more importantly, the military, they can't really do anything. So in other words, uh, there is an argument that despite of the electoral majority that they have, albeit very small, they don't really stand a chance against the serving elites. What do you have to say to those who argue that? So I, I don't know if they don't stand a chance. They have a chance, of course, and this what we are fighting in a sense like, but I, I would like to focus the discussion on changing the rules of the game. So I think the legitimacy of, of what the government is doing is, is, is should take into account that 64 is, of course, as a majority. That was the election in November 22. 64 members of Knesset for the, the, the current coalition were voted and elected. That's fine. But they were not given the credit. They were not given the, 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 the right to change the rules of the game. And this is what we see. And that's why the, 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 the protests are, are so effective and are uh, able to move people outside of, of, of their home and every, like, 32 weeks or whatever we are after uh, right now. So changing the rules of the game, this is what the government is trying to do, and this is, I think, something which is uh, just for the for the listeners and the viewers to understand uh, the equivalent. But I think, tell me, correct me if I'm wrong. What you're saying is, imagine, imagine, a new American president entering the White House with his or her administration, and the first thing they do, because they can, is change the constitution. Yes. That's change, what you're saying. Yes, change the constitution and even more than that. That was not part of the election before. So it's, it's was, it wasn't part of the, the, it was of the agenda. It was completely not declared, yes. undeclared. So it wasn't part of the agenda before the election. This is what I'm going to do. It was like kind of a surprise planned uh, that was announced after the election. So before you look at the before the election, the, the issues that was relevant yeah. was cost of living it, or yeah. stuff like that. This is a political ambush. Yes, yes. That's and what it is. Yes, so it's a combination of changing the rules of the games without any announcement, without uh, now, having a proper I must discussion. ask you a question, and I ask this question because I come from government and I spent, um, you know, 
if I, if I, you know, I spent 25 years in the foreign service and before that I worked for state-run television, before that I was in the army. So I spent over 30 years working for the Israeli government in one capacity or another. And I learned that if there's a dilemma, whether to accuse the government of malice or of ineptitude, usually go with ineptitude. So do you think that this was a malicious ambush or this is just a clumsy maneuver, a clumsy attempt at aggressive political grab? Um, no, I think it was malicious. It was, I think that was a plan. I think Yariv Levin, the Minister of, of Justice, uh, was planning this all in uh, a long time. And he, now he saw an opportunity and he joined forces with the Prime Minister in this attempt, and that was a plan, uh, a, a plan that they were uh, thinking about. Uh, of course, they were expecting the the mass response by the public and by the and the protests that were so effective so far. And still, there's it's not it's not over. We are far from over. But I think they were not planning. We're not thinking about it. Just let me clarify one issue that was not part of the plan. That was. Uh, perhaps it's stupidity in a sense, or not planned, the economic issue. They were not thinking about the economic implication of what we see here. So there was some discussion of, didn't you, didn't you consider, didn't you think about the economic consequences of this judicial overhaul? And they were not thinking. Even Kohelet Forum, this like extreme right-wing forum that uh, uh, helped the judicial reform, were not thinking about. Even the head of the economic research at Coalit Forum declared that they were not thinking about it and what we see now will have bad negative consequences to the economy. So I think they were planning, but we're not thinking about all the aspect and the economic right. aspect were not part of the plan. They were not thinking, we're not understanding what will be the implication of-, right. of, uh, right. of the I think that there's a mis misconception in Israel about Kohelet. Um, and I say this as someone who spent many, many years in the States, is not all conservatives, not all libertarians describe themselves as conservatives. And Kohelet is definitely libertarian. Yes. And not necessarily conservative. So there's a, and they can be very liberal on some issues and can be ultra conservative on, on other issues. Um, and um, it's very interesting combination. But the, I think that the failure is the, naive notion that you can take some elements from the American system and bring them to Israel. And I just read recently that Mr. Danchik, who is one of the main founders of Kohelet, announced that he will no longer fund the organization. Um, I don't know what, what, what about the other, the other fellow that is, is uh, supporting Kohelet. But, uh, but I do know, and I know many people that say that they are proud libertarians in America, and they don't see themselves as conservatives. Um, and that's uh, that's a, that's a distinction I think that we we should uh, emphasize. Um, now, what going forward? What do you think is the most effective way to uh, send that message to the government that the economic consequence, the economic implications, are going to be unbearable? They are already unbearable. So there are several signs or indications that uh, there is damage already being done to the economy and we're unfortunately expect even more damage to be done if this overhaul is going to be pro uh, um, con 
move forward um, even more than it is right now. In terms of the, uh, putting the message uh, for, uh, to, the, to the public, I think the government understand that. I think uh, we see also in surveys that many people who um, change their views about the judicial overall and have decided, or at least in the service says, in the polls, they say they're not going to vote for the government government, understand that there are going to be bad economic consequences and the consequences or the negative consequences are a major factor that make, made them change their views. Nevertheless, I think the government is kind of in an interlock in the sense that they are trying to still moving forward. They, perhaps they don't care about the economy so much. They care about other things and these other things are more important for them than the economy. I think this is why they're moving forward. I think that's perhaps the main reason for them moving forward. But nevertheless, we think that there are some people in Israel that still don't see the damage. They don't see, don't understand how much more damage and, and, and unemployment and higher interest rate and higher mortgages and higher cost of living will be part of our lives if this reform is going to move forward more than it is right now. I think without yeah. the high tech, there's going to be unemployment, going to be less money for education, less money for welfare, less money for security. So all these aspects will become even worse uh, as we move forward without some sort of, uh, of, uh, of uh, an agreement, a broad agreement of what we can we do in Israel and what can we not do in Israel in terms of the legislation. Yeah, and, I, and do you think such an agreement is is within reach. I hope. Who do you think will benefit politically from what's happening now in Israel? I'm not a political commentator, but we see that it just in the No, polls. I'm not talking about a specific name, but what kind of... Uh, because here's my theory, okay? And that's why I, I tell you that whenever there's a dilemma between malice and ineptitude, go with ineptitude okay. um, when it comes to governments. Mr. Netanyahu inadvertently created a whole new political camp in Israel. It's the pro-democracy camp. I think this camp has the potential of setting the tone for years to come. Problem is that this camp is unable to present a vision that goes beyond military survival. And if you ask me, as a diplomat, as a former diplomat, that's the main reason why we're facing the crisis that our entire psyche, our entire mindset was centered around security-related considerations, including the economy, and we never were able to galvanize the Israeli public around the unifying vision that goes beyond military survival. Um, I think this is a challenge. I think I, al I also agree with you that the, the, what we see now was able to create a big camp of liberal democracy, people who think about liberal values as part of our lives and going to now to serve and, and put their time and effort in this camp. I think this is a big hope out of this very, very dire situation that we have. And I think, including myself, putting so much time into this, uh, into this uh, protest, into this effort, into this fight. And just, just one example of people who understand that they can no longer live and do, uh, like live their life without understanding the, the social and the political situation where we're living for. Still, there's a big, big uh, step from just creating this camp towards changing the, the, the current situation and, and coming up with a, an actual agenda. 
Uh, but I think we're working on it. There's, so let, there let is understanding you. that we need to to put effort in all these other issues of, of education and values and what does it mean for having a, a, a liberal camp. So I, I have a question for you that, that has a lot to do with the uh, with the role of identity politics. You know, because of identity politics, which is prevalent throughout the Western world, unfortunately, because I think it's toxic, uh, people find it very difficult to get out of their position. Meaning, if I say, let's say I grew up in a Likud family, I think, I think that what's happening is wrong, but I'm still going to vote Likud because I can't get out of my position. So based on your experience in the protest, you're, you're out there. You see people day in and day out. You're organizing a lot of the stuff. Do you see people that are actually able to get out of their positions? No, so we see this in the polls. I'm not saying I totally agree with you, but there is a, this is an issue and it's a problem. But if we look at the polls right now, there are about 120 members of, of the parliament. Now, if we look at the polls, it's consistent over the, thing of the last two, three, four months, about 68 support the opposition, 68 out of 120, and 52 support the opposition. So there's a dramatic change still. It's only the polls, it's not the election, but we have never seen such a change in terms of the support for the opposition. So it's no longer right versus left. I think this is a distinction that we should avoid. It's liberal camp and extremist camp on the other side, okay? So this is what we see, and I think this is why more and more people, perhaps not enough, understand that they should change what they, they, their election or their vote, and we see this, and this is clearly something so, we see. So, and and, and the, just one thing, my concern is that before the next election, we need to make sure there's no no damage. So the damage is great, but we, is, is very big, but we need to prevent higher damage or larger damage to the economy and to society before the next election. That's a challenge. So based on the, that division, uh, that you just described, the new political contour, the new political division line. Uh, Mr. Netanyahu and Mr. Levin uh, basically did the liberal camp a big favor. They redefined the liberal camp. And, and again, based on your description, it looks like if, uh, if it will have adequate leadership, which I'm not sure it will, but if it will have adequate leadership, then maybe... Um, we can get out of this mess even stronger. That's the hope, definitely. And we saw there's two two examples of this. We had the the election for the bar in Israel. Okay, the Israeli bar, the, the election. And in the end of October, there is election for the local municipality in Israel. I think that would be another uh, indicator. Uh, yes, an important indicator whether this liberal camp were able to to change the, the result of the of the general election. Yeah, let me just um, uh, tell our, our viewers and our listeners that Professor Ater is referring to the elections to the Bar Association, uh, whereas the uh, candidate that opposes the judicial overhaul got 73% of the votes, and his opponent who supported it, or at least was described as someone who supported it, got only 13% of the votes. So that was a resounding defeat for the pro-judicial overall camp. Uh, Professor Ater, you know, it's, it's such a, a fascinating topic, and uh, it's a real privilege to talk to someone like you who's in the front lines, really, uh, working day in and day out to fix the Israeli system. And so thank you so much for being with us, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to you again. 
Thank you very much. Happy to be here. And to our listeners and our viewers, until our next episode, goodbye from Tel Aviv. 